Friends, I want to encourage you to take your copy of the Scriptures. We have been studying the book of Romans. The key word is righteousness. This is a letter that Paul wrote, a a theological treatise on the salvation of man. And you may recall in our review, there's a couple of key words that we have discovered here. In our review, we have, uh, remember in chapters 1 to 3, Paul's conversation is about condemnation. It is our need for righteousness. We are sinners, and we stand guilty before a holy God. Again, like a prosecutor pointing his finger at each one of us and saying, you stand guilty before God. Well, then we jump to four and five for a bit of a relief, and we found out how we can be justified in God's presence, declared righteous in His sight. And of course, the only way that's possible is through the death of Christ and a response of faith in Him, saved by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Well, uh, we move to our next section, which was verses, our chapters six through eight which is really the heart of the gospel. I mean, it is certainly essential that we understand our condition. We are lost, separated from God, without hope in this world, without Christ. It is essential that we know what it is that God has done for us in the sending of His Son to die in our place, to be buried and risen once again back to life, that He might give us life. His grace is an offer. Our response must be faith. But in chapter 6 to 8, we learn how to live this out, this relationship between the law and the Spirit. Following rules leads to death, but living in obedience, following, being influenced by the Spirit of God leads to life. But then we come to chapter 9 this morning. Chapter 9, the key word in this next section in chapters 9 to 11, if you're keeping your own outline of the book, which is a wonderful way, by the way, to understand and remember what a book teaches is to, to learn an easy, simple outline. That way when I say, hey, we're going to talk about salvation, you say, that must be in chapter 4 and 5 because the key word is Adam and Christ, and then we got the faith of Abraham, and you just, it makes sense when you know the outline. But the key word is vindication. And what we're going to see here in chapters 9 to 11 seems like Paul started another letter, but he connected it to the church, uh, this letter to the church of Rome, but it actually makes good sense. The question we're going to be dealing with is what about Israel this morning? Now, you may recall that last week in the study of chapter 8, you know, Paul gave us an unassailable argument of the security of the believer in Christ, that, that God not only saves us, but He also secures us. Remember, salvation is not just the forgiveness of sin, Salvation is not just being free from the penalty of sin. It is the process in which we gain power over sin, and one day we escape the very presence of sin. So salvation is not just a past tense choice that you made to put your trust in Jesus. It is a work that God continues in our life. 
And so Paul sums up this argument, this chapter, reminding us that there is no condemnation. There will never be separation if God be for us. Who could possibly be against us? For when God saves us, he secures us. And even in the summation of such things, I can imagine that in the back of Paul's mind, there was an older man who, who stands up. He clears his throat. <clears throat> Excuse me, Paul, lifting his frail hand. The security you speak of, that when God chooses and saves, he secures, then what about Israel? Did God not choose Israel? And yet look at them now. They have rejected God's Son. And it is as if God has cast them aside. What say you about that? Chapter 9. And Paul answers that very question, what about Israel? And notice how he begins dealing with this, uh, this question. And remember, throughout this letter, Paul is constantly offering questions that some might ask and then following up by answering them. And notice here in verse 1, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, and my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Say, Paul, what is it? What, what, what really causes anguish in your life? Is it our political system? Is it your neighbors who won't cut their grass, or cut it too short, or it's too long, or they leave their garbage can? I mean, what is it that really bugs you? This is the anguish that Paul is in. He said, verse 3, For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul's talking about the Jews. You think about the ministry of Paul. I mean, God has, has called him in a, in a most unusual way, interrupting a journey. And appearing before him, calling him to ministry. A ministry to the Gentiles, it's an unpopular ministry. You know, the Jews who, who he was so passionately serving among, now look at him as a traitor. And he goes from town to town, he's preaching the gospel. And people are coming to faith in Christ. I mean, this guy's got an amazing ministry given to him by God. Now, it's true. There's Jews tracing him, trying to kill this guy to shut him up and stop talking about this Jesus. And churches are being planted, and it certainly his heart is heavy for the churches, which is why we have all these letters written by Paul to all these churches. Teach them, instruct them, ground them in the faith. But underneath all of it, bubbling, yeah, they're chasing after me and they want to silence me. 
but they don't know my Jesus. And Paul says here, look at this, verse 3. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Just pause on that for a moment. I would give up all of the blessings, the security, the forgiveness, and the hope that I have in Jesus if only they would come and know him. That's a heart for the lost right there, my friends. And so having laid out this burden that he carries for Israel, again, a very natural conclusion. Again, you know, the security of believer, if God chooses you, he secures you. But what about Israel? I mean, if God chose them, why do they seem that they've been kicked into the alley, living under a box somewhere when it comes to the promises of God, or so it seems? And in verse 4, he talks about the blessings of their election. I mean, they're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption and the glory. I mean, think about it. When they built that temple and the Shekinah glory moved in, and it was amazing, and people were startled, just like uh, when they received the law, and there was thunders and lightnings, and, and people were told, don't even touch the mountain upon which where God is meeting with Moses, lest you die. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, to them belong the patriarchs. I mean, they go back in their ancestry, they go back to Abraham. I mean, whom God chose and, and made a covenant that would never end. Patriarchs. And even from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. These, these immense advantages that the Jewish people had, that God brought them together, moved them into a promised land. You've read the book. Now he talks about the basis of their election. And he says that not all of Israel is Israel. Take a look. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. You know, all those promises that God made, the covenant that he made to bless them and to discipline them, to bring them back, the whole test, Old Testament is filled with it. And it's not as if God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And why? Because not all of Israel has been chosen. Look at verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And then Paul begins to lay out some arguments here. You remember here, I know that this seems like a big turn and how'd we end up in this neighborhood? The natural outflow, the question that follows chapter 8 is that those who have been chosen by God and saved by God are secured by God. But if that's true, what about Israel? 
I mean, God only seems to be focused on the church, whatever happened to Israel. I mean, two-thirds of the Bible are about Israel. And now we get to the New Testament, and there are a bunch of bad guys. What about that? Not all of Israel is Israel. Yeah, the covenant that God made to Israel was not to every Israelite that would be born. Do you remember the Old Testament history? I mean, they barely make it out of Egypt. Before, oh, so many, where they want to kill Moses and they want to go back to slavery because surely it's better than not having something cold to drink around here and there's nothing to eat and we don't even know where we're going and they're grumbling and they're complaining. You recall that at one point God opened the earth and had to just swallowed up a whole bunch of people. What was God's choice of those people? Apparently, one of the ways to identify the people that God has chosen is their response of faith to him. How do we identify those who have been elect? And so Paul, again, he says, not all of Israel is Israel because not all of Israel has been chosen. And apparently, what counts is grace, not race. We'll say that again because you want to write that down. (laughs) What counts is grace, not race. The grace of God extended and the response of faith that receives it. And certainly we can read through the Old Testament and we can see people who shake their fist at God and yet they're of the nation of Israel. What happened to that? The grace of God extended, but no faith exercised. And so the basis of their election here explained. And then he gives us a couple of illustrations just so we can get this clear because already we're like, I need some boots. This is muddy stuff. And here in verse 8, Paul begins to illustrate this. He says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The children of the promise. What do you mean by that? Give us some illustrations. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Well, he goes right back to Abraham and Sarah. You remember Abraham was 99 and uh, Sarah was 89 years old and they had no children. Now God had, you remember back in chapter 12 in Genesis, God called Abraham. He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. Anyone that curses you, I'll curse. Anyone that blesses you, I'll bless you. Through this nation, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The thing about being a nation is you got to have more than two people. <laughs> I mean, really, for anyone to consider you a nation, you need more than two. And they got no kids. And you may recall the, uh, the frustration of that. And eventually, Sarah, she's, I ain't having any kids. I don't even have no grandkids. I don't even have neighbors with kids. But I got this servant, and her name was Hagar. Remember Hagar? And Sarah's plan was this, Abraham, you have a child through Hagar, and I'll count it as mine. Well, remember, God is about the promise, not about us scheming and working things out, 
But indeed, Hagar had a child. His name was Ishmael. And in Genesis chapter 17, God clarifies this. No, a year from now, you're going to have a baby. Remember Sarah's in the, the, the opening of the tent overhearing this conversation? and she, <laughs> That ain't happening. Why did Sarah laugh? We didn't laugh. <laughs> and you know how when you laugh and somebody calls you on it, you can't stop laughing? But Sarah's back there like, this cannot possibly happen. Is there anything that God is not able to do? Wonderful, wonderful reminder that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so God made a promise that these old, these super senior citizens were going to have a baby, and it wasn't going to be their grandson. And even Abraham's like, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, no. It will be the child of promise that my covenant will go through. And, of course, that child was Isaac. And you remember what Isaac means? It means laughter. <laughs> Just to remind them, you didn't believe me, but God is faithful. And so Paul reminds us, hey, it was Isaac, the promised one. Not just, you know, you say, well, wait a minute. Ishmael was just as much a son of Abraham as Isaac was. And that's the point. It's not about race. It's about grace. And the grace was extended to Isaac. So God chose Jacob over Esau. We move to a second illustration here. I mean, we're we're just moving through the family of Abraham. Look at his descendants. How about his son Isaac? You know, Isaac was a child of promise. Well, let's talk about Isaac's kids. You know, well, there's uh, Esau and Jacob, and they were twins. And so surely you can't choose one over the other because they're coming out at the same time, generally speaking, you know, or maybe an unusual order. But look at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau. I have hated. Well, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Apparently, just because you're a descendant of Abraham does not mean that you are a child of the promise, that the grace of God has been extended to you, that you have been called to him to respond in faith. So what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? I mean, is, is God fair? Is God fair? Do you expect that God should be fair? Raise your hand if you think God should be fair. Because if God is fair, we all go to hell. No, didn't think so. We don't want a fair God. We want a merciful God. Because we are sinners deserving of hell. 
every last one of us. See, yeah, but not as much as so you get hell light. No. (laughs) Hell. That's what we deserve. Separation from God for all eternity. And look at verse 15. Paul lays it out here. For he says to Moses, who says that? The Lord. Yahweh says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And for the Scripture says, for a third illustration, remember the first illustration was the promised Isaac chosen over Ishmael, chosen Jacob, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And the third illustration in verse 17 is Pharaoh. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Let that one soak in a little bit. Again, we're, we're back in Genesis here, back to the beginnings. You remember then Genesis, Joseph's brother sold him as a slave. And we move into Exodus. And they've been in slavery, multiplying for 400 years. And now God's going to bring them out. He raises up a guy named Moses to lead them. And there was a Pharaoh. And Moses sent, or God sent Moses to Pharaoh. And do you remember this? This is so key in this, uh, this account. The Lord said, hey, you remember Moses? No, I don't talk very good. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not that good at stuff like that. And God said, no, you're going anyway. I'm like, well, why will they believe me? You remember, throw down the staff. It's a serpent. Pick it up by the tail. Put your hand. Leprosy. Uh, leprosy. No, it's gone. And then he goes. And he says, Yahweh says to let my people go. And Pharaoh says this, get this. He says, well, who is Yahweh that I should let his people go? And the rest of all of those, those horrendous things that happened throughout these plagues throughout Egypt were all opportunities for Pharaoh to know who Yahweh is, who the Lord God is. See, and that's exactly what Paul says here. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. What was the purpose for God raising up Pharaoh? It was to show his power. And not only that, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, remember this, when when Israel was released from bondage, they crossed through the Red Sea they instantly had a reputation in the neighborhood. Everyone knew about this Yahweh who had led them through the Red Sea on dry ground. God's name was already beginning to spread. And do you know what another word for the spreading of God's name is? Glory. 
when people know about his power and his reputation is known, he is glorified. He is glorified. And so Paul's laying this out here. Now, let's not lose, you know, there's a lot of cool details in this, but, but the big picture is, what about God's promise to Israel? And the point that Paul is making is, is that God chooses whom he will show mercy to, whom he will raise up to show his power. And God raised up for Pharaoh. And you will notice, uh, so then he has mercy on whoever he wills, verse 18, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, this is where it gets a little sticky. gets a little sticky here because, because Paul seems to be saying that he hardens the heart of some people but softens the heart of others. Do you see that? He chose Jacob, loved him, hated Esau. And, and he hardened Pharaoh to show his power. Hmm. Let's keep reading. We haven't run out of time, have we? All right, let's listen a little faster. Okay, here we go. So verse 18, summing it all up. So then... He has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he will. Professor in college uh, told me that uh, in the, the context here about God hardening people and so he says that the sun, this very same sun in the sky that melts wax, hardens clay. And it kind of takes us back to the parable of the, the soils the rocky ground and the the fallow ground and the you know but but how you respond to God tells us a lot about your heart and so take a look here verse 19 now remember Paul has uh, has has illustrated how God works in his election not all of Israel is Israel i mean the the covenant was made to Abraham that there would be a nation, but not everybody in the nation was called. Paul's laying it out here. So he illustrates that with Isaac being chosen over Ishmael, Jacob being chosen over Esau, and God choosing to harden Pharaoh that his power might be shown and that his name might be proclaimed. Summed up again with this argument, verse 18 So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And here in verse uh, 19, Israel's election is defended. He answers this question, how can God judge people for what he controls? If he hardens Pharaoh, how can he then condemn Pharaoh? Logical question. If God makes the choices, how can he hold man responsible? Look at verse 19 where he asks it, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But look at here. Here's Paul's argument for the election of God. God is sovereign. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? 
I mean, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Talking about the rights of God as a potter. You remember in Jeremiah 18, that illustration of the potter was used in regard to nations. And Paul seems to be using it on an individual level here. So how can God judge what he controls? But look at here in verse uh, 20. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? I mean, who would do that, right? I mean, nobody looks in the mirror and say, God, why didn't you give me a bigger nose or a smaller nose or better hair or more hair or less hair? I mean, nobody would do that, right? (laughs) But who is to say to God, why have you made me this way? You should have made me. Here's the argument, friends. God is sovereign. Remember, God is God. He's not that nice gentleman that lives at the corner. He is the creator of the universe. He is El Shaddai, the Almighty. And so who are we to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and for another for dishonorable use? God's purpose. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, uh, just a bit of definition here. One thing that God is, is... is utmost concerned with is his glory. Think about the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus' disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray, just like John taught his disciples how to pray. And he gave us this model prayer. And and you remember the model prayer? We all know it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And, and there it is. The purpose of our prayer is to make the name of God famous. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your very salvation and the purpose of it is to bring glory to God. Your existence is to give glory to God. God is very concerned about his glory and his name. So what if God desiring to show his wrath? Because God's glory is his attributes. It is showing who he is. The demonstrating of his love at Calvary brought glory to God. It is impossible to argue that God is not a God of love in light of the cross. It is impossible. But God is not only a God of love, he is a God of wrath. And how does he demonstrate that? How does he demonstrate his wrath? Look at there. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? 
remember, point of theology here. You come into this world a sinner separated from God. Everyone from birth, while we are still yet in our mother's womb, we are sinners. We sin because we are sinners. We are born with a fallen fallenness. We have a sin nature. And just as a fish, when it pops out of its egg, starts swimming, it does so because it's a fish. A bird learns to fly, eats stuff out of its mom's mouth because it's a bird. Birds do what birds do. Sinners do what sinners do. And you know what they do? They sin. Nobody had to teach you how to lie. Nobody had to teach you how to look out for yourself and, and uh, exhibit your wrath on anyone that tried to take your toy away. We come into this world sinners. And it doesn't change much except to get worse. We, uh, we, we, we come up with better ways to sin, more clever ways. We come up with ways to hide it. We come up with ways to be anonymous about it. We're sinners. Amen? Thank you, Ron Moore. (laughs) It's true. We know it by our experience. We know it by living in the world and looking around us. Everyone puts locks on their doors and their cars and on everything else because we know the world is filled with thieves. And today, the practice is if you put a picture up on the Internet of something cool... You put a little C in a circle around it, and you say, don't use my stuff, it's mine. Because <laughs> we know people take stuff that doesn't belong to them. And it's true. Everyone here has stolen something in your life. In the moment I said it, you remembered instantly what it was. For me, I was about four years old, and I stole a pack of batteries. And my mom was up there looking at it, I was down here, and I didn't need them. I didn't even know what to do with them. But I took them. And then you know what I did? I hit them. Looks a lot like the garden, doesn't it? They ate, they hid themselves, and they covered themselves. Because instantly we knew guilt. And what if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power, endured sinners... With, with much patient vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory. God's purpose is his glory. God is sovereign. He's the one that gets to make the choices. His choices always advance his glory. But I want you to notice also his plan He did this in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand. There it is again, for glory. And then Paul says, even us, even people like me and you, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. And indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Again, focus, Israel. God made a promise to Israel, but God reminded them the purpose of God's calling was to bring glory to his name and impact the nations around them. Hmm. But Hosea, the prophet Hosea says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. 
And her who was not beloved, I I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was says to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Though their numbers be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Only a remnant. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, destroyed. There's that nagging question. I mean, how is this fair? Again, if God is sovereign and he he makes the choices and he hardens some and he shows mercy to others... He reserves some for wrath to show his power and show his justice. How's that fair? The Gentiles, they attained righteousness by faith. But Israel failed to attain righteousness by their works. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? I mean, think about that. You know, God's focus on Israel, two-thirds of the Scriptures, the revelation you hold in your hand, Older Testament, summed up by God choosing, loving, drawing Israel to himself. And we get to the New Testament, and we see that they turn their back on God, and they crucify the Lord of life, the Messiah who had come to save them. They nailed to a cross. So what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. And that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And here in this conversation about the sovereignty of God, that God is God and he makes choices, he creates, he raises up, and he tears down He softens the hearts of sinners while Paul is out ravaging towns, arresting Christians, bringing them to prisons and bringing them to their death. Jesus stops him in his path. I mean, here's a guy who's just ferociously trying to kill these Christians. And God changes his heart. The same God who does that hardens the heart of Pharaoh. Now, if you read the account, you'll notice that Pharaoh also hardens his own heart, which sinners are oft wont to do. And so there is somehow a two-sided coin here of the sovereignty of God who makes choices. In Philippians 2.13, about a God who works in us both to will and to do according to his good works. Hmm. 
So God at work in our lives, he is sovereign. It is why we have hope today, is that as God is in control, it is God who does whatever God wants to do. And as he looks out for his children, it is what gives us hope. It is why we can know without a shadow of a doubt that if we trust in him, he will preserve us. He will bring us to eternal life. Why God may not take it out of us or take us out of the problems, he will get us through whatever it is. He will give us wisdom to know how to do it. It is not always deliverance, friends. Sometimes it's just empowerment to go through what God has called us to go through. And so the Gentiles, they obtained righteousness by faith. There is this sovereignty, but on the other side of the coin, there is this responsibility. We come into this world sinning and choosing only for us, and we are guilty before him. And so God, in his sovereignty and his wisdom, and in his plan, has chosen to save some. All moving toward hell, rebellion against God. It is in our heart, and it works its way out in our hands, and our mouth, and our feet, our mind and our, our, our bellies we lust after and long for. And God has chosen to save some. And in his call is the response of faith. If you are here today, I hope it is here. You are here because you've heard the gospel that Christ, say it with me, Christ died for our sin and rose from the dead. And you put your faith in him. You trusted him. You are dependent upon him wholly. And you are forgiven of your sin. You have been given a new life, eternal life, and a new destiny. And a destiny by the mercy of God and the grace of God, all for the purposes of God. And by the way, for the people of God, the glory of God always results in the good for his people. Always, always, always for the good of his people. So let's wrap it up. Sermon in a sentence. This is what it looks like. Election is a sovereign choice based solely on God's mercy and for his glory. So trust in God who is merciful. You are here today hearing this message. God has brought you here today to hear about his love and to hear about his mercy, to hear about the hope he will give you if you will trust in him, the life that he will give you if you will trust in him. Trust in the God who is merciful. And friends, if you have experienced his mercy, we all could show a little more gratitude for the goodness of God who sent his son to die for me. And for you.